Welcome to Corporately. I'm Glenn. And I'm Danny. Today, we're discussing the CEO pay gap ratio. This is a topic, Danny, that infuriates some, even me at times. The pay gap ratio is the difference in compensation between CEOs and the average worker as of 2010. This is a required disclosure of public company. In the United States, the CEO worker pay ratio has been steadily increasing for decades. In 2021, at public companies, the average CEO was paid 399 times as much as the average worker. If the average worker made around $56,000 a year, the CEO got over $20 million. The CEO pay gap is a complex issue. However, it deserves discussion because it has significant impact on the distribution of wealth and power in our society. Someone who makes $20 million a year is ridiculously wealthy. And when you realize how that pay is determined, which we'll discuss later, it will make you shake your head. I can't even imagine what it would be like to make that kind of money. And we all know that some portion of those CEOs simply don't deserve it. The average S&P 500 CEO made $15 million in 2022. And of course, there's some notable high-end CEOs there. Tim Cook of Apple made $99 million. Sundai Pichai of Google made $226 million. Barry McCarthy of Peloton, who came out of retirement to save the company, got a $168 million package to do so. Danny, do CEOs deserve to be paid millions upon millions of dollars per year? Well, that's an interesting question. I have to say, generally speaking, no. Uh, <laughs> you said it's hard to imagine being that wealthy. I, I might be able to spend that salary once the first year, but after that, what else are you going to do with it, right? It's just, it's it's beyond ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So I, I do want to say one thing, and that is that we're certainly going to focus on CEOs, but there are more than that. There, there are a small group of just mm -hmm. embarrassingly wealthy people out there, some of whom work for a living, some of whom don't. They have generational wealth, but there, there is this inequality gap that exists between the haves and the have-nots. And the haves, man, they really have. They have more than they could possibly use. The have-nots are often those folks that are struggling just to pay the rent, buy groceries. So I think it's worth looking into this. And I think uh, focusing on the CEOs is probably a, a kind of a good way to center on this because otherwise you can wander off and find people that would upset you for their wealth and their selfishness and the fact that they seem to be driven just to make more and more and more simply because they want to make more. Last thought on that would be, there are those people that have a lot of money, notably Bill Gates, who have stated publicly that they're going to give it all away and they're using that money for good things. They still have more than I can comprehend they need, but at least they're going in the right direction. That is, however, not true for all of them. I'm interested in digging into this. I, I don't think that I can come up with any rational explanation for why anybody deserves $200 million a year. You just, you can't possibly need that much money. You can't possibly justify to me that you are adding that much value to the company. I will share that I worked for exactly one CEO of a public company who I thought was worth a lot of money, John Ledger at T-Mobile. He was there for about seven years. He came in after about my second year at T-Mobile, his pay walking in the door was $15 million in that first year. And it rose to as high as $66 million for a year. And he got $137 million to leave. <laughs> so, uh, But his ability to navigate and move the entire organization down the right path was pretty amazing. He turned this massive company around. The previous CEO had done the opposite. 
At one point, the company was about to be bought by AT&T in kind of a cram down kind of sale, but AT&T botched the acquisition. And instead, a few years later, with John Ledger at the helm, T-Mobile was buying Sprint. It was an amazing turnaround story. I don't know if he was worth as much as we paid him, but he really did turn around this company in an amazing way in a short time. Well, I have to say that whoever the prior CEO was certainly wasn't worth the money, whatever <laughs> it was. So those kinds of dichotomies where you've got a company that's failing, well, they're still paying the CEO an outrageous amount of money, even when, when it's wrong. And in fact, it's interesting to me that it seems like when companies are doing well, they hand out these huge compensation packages. And you can almost, I guess, justify that. You're doing great. You're making a bunch of money. You're making good decisions. So here's here's all this cash and all these bonuses. But the other side of that is, and this is not just me, sour grapes. This is factual, that it's very common for companies to do the same thing when their business is going badly. And they come up with an explanation that they need to give these high compensation packages for retention purposes. The previous CEO of T-Mobile was famous for saying, people will never want to watch TV on their phones. <laughs> and therein followed an underinvestment in their network and sent the company down the wrong path. But how did we get here? 399 times, that is the current CEO to worker pay ratio. And is it a problem? I believe it's a huge problem. And it should be noted that, as I mentioned a minute ago, it's it's not just CEOs. It's not just the United States, although here again, we're kind of the poster child for bad practices here. But income inequality has been around as long as there have been people. Way, way back, it used to be that the people that had all the money were the kings and queens. They just had this massive wealth and everybody else was eating dirt. This is not a new problem. It just exhibits itself in a different fashion. And I think the other point that we should make is the reason it's suddenly important is that we now know all these details. As you said in your intro, by law, public company has to disclose this information. Now it's available to everyone. So we're all aware of these ridiculous disparities, whereas maybe in the past it wasn't so much. You also need to remember that this is a very cyclical thing. This has been going on forever. So it's not something that's new. This is not some problem that's just existed for the last 40 or 50 years. This has been going on forever, that you have people that have piles of money and people that are barely getting by. I don't want to mislead anyone into thinking that this is some problem that has just popped up in the last 50 years, because that's certainly not the case. The other thing to keep in mind is, it's not just the US. We just seem to be the worst at it. So many other nations are suffering the same thing, but to a much lesser degree. It does seem worse. Let me give you a few stats. In 1965, the ratio was 20 to 1. So to use my earlier example, if the average worker made $56,000, the CEO made $1.1 million. In 1978, it was about 30 to 1. But between 1978 and 1989, it went from about 30 to 1 to about 60 to 1, doubling. So a $56,000 average worker pay went to $2.2 million. By 1995, it went from about 60 to 1 to 121. So in a short few years, about six years, it doubled again to 120 to 1. So $56,000 average worker salary became $6.8 million CEO salary. Five years later, it went from 120 to 380. And we've been kind of going up and down since about the late 20 teens. It has now risen to an all-time high 
of 399 to 1. That is a $56,000 average salary becomes over $20 million. I'd call that out of control. And if if I was to summarize that, I I did see another stat that fits into your conversation. And that is in the 40-year period between 1978 and 2018, CEO pay increased 900%. Hmm. That's a big jump. During that same period, worker pay increased, you ready for it? 12%. (laughs) <laughs> You're exactly right. The disparity is is bad. It's getting much worse. Is it because the CEOs are adding that much more value to the companies and they're doing that much better? I can't imagine how, because during that period, we've got some classic examples of companies torpedoing themselves and failing, making bad decisions, bankruptcies, layoffs. That's not it. It must have something other as the basis for that. I'm not entirely sure what that might be, but it could simply be that the CEOs have convinced themselves and their boards that they're worth more than they actually are. Well, perhaps now is a good time to talk about how CEO pay is determined. Say so. The board of a public company determines the pay of the CEO. They select the CEO. Some people say that is actually the only job of a uh, public company board is to hire and fire the CEO and determine their pay. And we should note that the way they determine the pay is they incorporate paid consultants that go out and survey and look at the pay of average CEOs across industries and across geographies. And we should also note that a board is made up of who? Other CEOs often of public companies. (laughs) So in a way, there is an incentive for every board to add to the pay of the CEO on the boards in which they sit. Because the next time their pay comes up for discussion, they're going to hire the compensation consultants who are going to go out and survey other public companies in their industries and in other geographies. And any increase outside of their own company will be reflected in their own pay. So giving another CEO a raise will come back to them. It seems a bit self-serving. And this is what drives some people insane. The other thing that's interesting to me is that when you just talk about CEOs in general, in my experience working with a major company, I'll go ahead and tell you it was General Electric. And these guys Mm -hmm. are in every imaginable business. I often saw that they would put people in charge of businesses in which they had no experience. And I'm not sure the rationale may have been, well, this guy was successful in the locomotive division, so he's going to be successful in the light bulb division, even though those are two completely different businesses with, I would think, different experience and skill levels necessary, but that's not the way the thinking goes. It feels like it's more to your point, and that is that there's this kind of select club of people who find it very self-serving to support their counterparts in other businesses because it will come back in a positive way to reflect on them. That could be a key part of how this has all gotten so out of control. It's this club of people who pat one another on the back and say, you deserve an extra $5 million this year. And then when that cycle comes around, that person can say to them, well, you know, you deserve an extra $8 million. It's kind of this vicious upward spiral. Well, you mentioned GE, and I think we should talk about Jack Welch. There's something out there called the Jack Welch effect. Jack was the CEO of General Electric from 1981 to 2001. He is credited with transforming GE into a powerful conglomerate, but he also became known as Neutron Jack for some of his practices. There's the famous Rankin Yank that he pioneered. That is the process of firing the bottom 10% of your workforce annually. 
There are mass layoffs and cost cutting as well as shutting down entire divisions within GE if they weren't the number one or number two in their markets. That was a stated strategy. Outsourcing manufacturing to lower cost countries. He generally used very aggressive strategies. It was an entirely different time in philosophy before and after Jack at GE. And before I go on, I should mention that I'm actually a fan of Jack Welch. I studied at his school, he established, and if you haven't read the book Winning, I actually do recommend it. I think his approach to managing companies evolved over time, and that book reflects the best of the Jack Welch management style, not the Neutron Jack. On the positive side, in 1999, Fortune magazine called him the manager of the century for his leading GE during a period of rapid growth and profitability. More specifically, GE's revenue quadrupled and its stock price went up 4,000%. But he did usher in a new way of managing business. Before him, if you got a job at GE, you were relatively secure and you may have had a job for life. And that security meant something. After him, things changed. No more job security and thus entered in the vacation anxiety we discussed in our last episode. Those two things coincided. Jack Welch at GE and vacation time shrinking in the U.S., Critics of Jack Welch argue that his apparent success with his aggressive approach caused the rest of the business world to copy it. And like so many things, the business world ran with it and probably took it too far. Specifically, an extreme focus on short-term gains, focusing on maximizing profit every single quarter. This led to decisions that some of which were no doubt short-sighted and meant simply to bolster stock prices for quick gains. A ruthless approach to downsizing, cost-cutting, and laying off thousands of employees at a time to improve efficiency, and of course, outsourcing led to permanent job losses and started the extinction of parts of the manufacturing base in the United States. And let's not forget about mergers and acquisitions. There were waves of M&A before Jack Welch, but you could argue he helped spur the waves in the 80s as he grew GE's business and expanded its reach into new markets. And he sold off many GE's assets that weren't at the top of their markets. Most importantly for this discussion, Jack Welch also believed in showering the top performers in a company with rewards. This is where things started to go off the rails, in my opinion. It's not a terrible idea that you want to make sure there is a significant differentiation in your compensation policies. If you're working your ass off for a whole year and you get a 3% raise and the person next to you who slacked off most of the year got a 2% raise, that hardly seems fair. But that philosophy has been taken to an extreme at the top levels. It seems nowadays there's almost no limit. 399 times seems absurd. Danny, I know you don't appreciate Jack Welch in the same way I do. Did I capture enough of the criticism you may want to throw his way? You and I have very different perspectives on this because I I worked for GE after his tenures. I kind of saw that negative downtrend, but many of his policies remained in effect. And a lot of the attitude within the company was fostered by him. So that's a discussion perhaps for a different podcast where we actually get into management styles and and the effectiveness of this extreme short-term thinking. We actually referred to that in our last session, talking about how the focus in the country tends to be, how much can I make this quarter because that's going to boost my income. This is the idea that most CEOs operate from. How do I make my bottom line look super good for the next quarterly meeting so that I can boost my income? Mm -hmm. The downside of what I saw from him was that it created great divisions within the organization, which actually relates to the topic that we're discussing today. And that is that there's a great deal of anxiety 
in a company where you're making what you think is an unfair low wage and you see someone at the top making these obscene amounts of money and yet you're basically working on the same project. One last negative about the Jack Welch approach that I do have to point out is that to this day, the idea that you fire the bottom 10% every year is still in effect, but it also carries over to entire project teams. And this happened to me personally, where a project is finished, they simply fire you. They don't let you move on to the next task. You have to reapply and essentially start over. So my tenure with GE ended when they fired my entire team and me at the completion of our project, because I thought not much loyalty here. Turned out okay for me. It allowed me to move on to some other things. But I think that all of this is slightly outside the, the discussion that we're having today, because that's one unique individual with some ideas that I tend to not agree with, who was still wildly compensated for the work that he did. But in his case, he was able to provide stockholders in his company a very positive outcome. So it may be something that one could justify in the case of his slash and burn approach because the shareholders came out ahead. But that also brings up another aspect of this whole inequality thing. And that is there's the Jack Welches of the world that are making millions of dollars a year. And there are the shareholders, the equity holders in these corporations. And those two groups, the CEOs and the shareholders represent a relatively small percent of the population of, of the United States, of any country actually. And yet that's where the wealth is concentrated think that while we're talking about high wages for CEOs, you also have to consider that there are people that benefit from whatever these CEOs are doing as long as their stock goes up. Much of that seems to me to have absolutely nothing to do with the business acumen of a particular CEO. Uh, and I've often said probably to you that a lot of my perspective on Wall Street is that it's just Las Vegas on the East Coast because there's so much unpredictability about this. But you do need to keep in mind that the top 10% of people in the US income-wise hold 69% of the wealth. And that also is going up. So it's not just the CEOs. It's not just the Jack Welches. It's the people that are shareholders in major corporations. It's homeowners. It's this small group. 10% of the US population holds almost 70% of all the wealth in the United States. That's today. And that's shocking. And those numbers have gone up too, not as fast as CEO pay. But if I look back maybe into the 80s or early 90s, that number was probably closer to 60%. So it's increased in the same way, but not at the same pace. You mentioned earlier that Jack put people into leadership positions in companies where they seemingly had no experience. He also just mentioned the Las Vegas style of management. And we should also point out that the compensation that is $20 million, the vast majority of that is in stock. Are we setting ourselves up for these managers basically just rolling the dice and hoping something good happens and taking on too much risk at the cost of the lower levels of our organization because are they just roll the dice, hope it turns out good, make enough money to retire multiple times over, and if it doesn't work out, just walk away? Well, just walk away and, and find your next gig because there seems to be a bit of a revolving door in a lot of these Fortune 500 companies where the CEO can move from one to the other. And following the Welch model, it doesn't really matter if you've got experience in that business, mm -hmm. but you're a CEO. So somehow you can magically take over an IT business, even though you've been running a construction business. I don't think the rules are quite the same, but I also, I've never been a CEO. I've never been close to that. 
So there are probably things that I don't understand that matter in those positions. But I think all that aside, I I think the simple thing that we want to focus on here is just this enormous disparity in what these people make. And whether it's in cash or stock or real estate or jets or whatever it is that they're getting, they're still making way more than you and I ever will. And the question is, I think twofold. One, is that fair? Is that reasonable? And two, and maybe something else that we really need to dig into is what are the repercussions? Can you continue to do that and not have problems that arise? And by that, if you look back historically, there have been actual bad outcomes in society when this gets carried away. And by that, I'm referring to things that have happened in the past in the United States, but other countries as well, where there have actually been uprisings amongst the workers when they felt like they were being unfairly treated and taken advantage of. The most notable example might be right here in the Northwest where you and I live in the early 1900s. There were a group of union workers called the Wobblies. A number of people were killed in protests over exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about. You're not paying me enough to live. You're making ridiculous amounts of money. You're demanding more from me than is reasonable. Those are things we haven't talked about. And that is this deep polarity that develops in, in an environment like this. And I think it's, it's important to at least address it because this inequality is more than just annoying. It, it, is, it stokes social discontent. It's a driver of political polarization. We're seeing that now in this country where there are great disparities. And a lot of those are along economic lines. So depending on which particular political spectrum you fall into, a lot of that has to do with your economic status. Those are things that can really cause problems. It can cause, I guess the way to put it is an unequal society has a tendency to weaken trust in public institutions and it undermines our democracy. These are kind of bold statements that I'm making, but they're factual and history has shown time and time again that there are bad outcomes as a result of this. So I guess the question I'm asking you is, given the current situation where you've got this increasing difference between, we'll call them the haves and the have-nots, do you think that there is a possibility that this is going to get to the point where there is actual physical uprising against this? Well, it's hard to believe they have such a stranglehold on that wealth, and there's so much incentive for them not to let go. I know you mentioned it's only a small percentage of the population, but it's not a single king or queen that you're you're overthrowing. It's a massive number of people who have spent their lives building this wealth and creating these mechanisms to make sure they hold on to it. Are are we seeing any pushback from any groups right now, do you think? That is is a certain generation, are the millennials saying we won't keep working hard if you don't share the wealth? Are there Is the quiet quitting a, a form of this kind of protest? Well, quiet quitting might be a good example, but I mean, that's actually not going to change anything. I think that the big impact of that is the people that quit because they still have to figure out a way to make a living. But I think that's a statement that sort of supports this. So it's hard for me to imagine demonstrations in the streets, but it has happened in the past. Hmm multiple times and in multiple countries. So there is a tipping point. I just, I don't know what it is. I doubt that anyone can say when you get to this point, instead of 900% gains, the CEOs are making 2000% gains. I, I don't think you can quantify it. And I think that we're a big country and we've got lots of disparity and there are pockets of wealth where most people are better off than pockets of poverty. 
If you compare, let's say, New York to West Virginia in terms of financial wealth, those are huge disparities. Wealth Virginia is close to the bottom in terms of income. New York is chock full of millionaires and billionaires. Those two groups of people at the current time have wildly different political views. Certainly, we're not at the point where guns are drawn and that sort of thing happens. But what I'm positing is that that is possible. It has happened in the past where there have been strong social uprisings. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility here. I don't think that when you start talking about generations like the, the boomers versus the millennials and that sort of thing, I don't think we've got any lines drawn there. There are some interesting numbers associated with that in terms of who's got the most money. Boomer has the greatest quantity of wealth in the United States right now. The millennials and the Gen Z, the really young ones, they're not even close. But what will happen is there will be inheritances. My kids will end up with some of my stuff. Your kids will end up with some of your stuff. And that will change over time. I think the bigger question amongst those generational groups is simply their attitude toward work, how important it is and what they're willing to do. And this sort of goes back to some of the things we've talked about in earlier podcasts about how they want to work and do they consider returning to office and what about vacations? It's all very different amongst those various groups. I think that there will be other things at play, things about the society that these people live in, the things that they care about. The younger kids obviously are much more screen savvy than you and I. We're talking about people that were born basically with a phone in their hand. That sort of thing is unrelated, I think, to actual wealth and how you perceive it. But here's the risk. As wealth continues to concentrate and you create these fiefdoms of wealth and it seems to only be passing down through certain families, and if these Gen Zers and millennials are attempting to come up, and for example, if home ownership is no longer within reach and everyone becomes a renter and they're not able to build that kind of wealth, there are companies out there funded by some of these massively wealthy people for example, Jeff Bezos, who are buying up land through, throughout the Sun Belt, buying up single-family homes and turning them into rentals by the thousands. Will we start to get that kind of uprising when everybody becomes a renter? And now you've got what amounts to serfs working the lands of some king or feudal lord back in history. I think what that means is it changes the entire dynamic of real estate, and it eliminates to some degree the competitive nature of that, which is the reason home prices have gone up so much. So when you and I are no longer in the picture, we're not looking to buy. And everyone that we know is not looking to buy. It seems likely that uh, the relative value of a piece of property will stop increasing. So there will be either some kind of stability or an extremely low appreciation rate. If the only way that you can make money on property is to rent it, you lose that churn that is part of the reason that real estate prices go up. I think that that's a factor that only time will actually allow us to see how it plays out. I do agree with you that homeownership at the current time is out of reach for a lot of people and for a couple of reasons. One is the just the increasing cost, but this current panic over rising interest rates. And I have to point out here, 7% doesn't seem like a bad deal to me given my history, because I remember looking for a house once and the mortgage rate was 19%. Jeez. So it feels like, although the truth is at that time, the very 
very real cost of homes was much lower. So probably kind of all work. That's a topic for another day. But I think that real estate is one of those things that's going to change over time. Ownership rates are going to change over time. This has always been the great American dream, right? To have your own home. That's been part of our culture practically since this country was founded. And it may not be based necessarily on financial rewards. It's just some sense of security and freedom and independence that I own this. This is mine. And remember that this country, once it was invaded by the Europeans, was it was a group of people that had never had the opportunity to own anything. They were always mm-hmm. subjects of the king. And now they get to this place where they can own. So it's this this ethos that we've adopted that probably doesn't have any real basis in economics. It's just this sense of freedom and independence. That could very well change over time when it becomes less important to say, I own my home than just say, hey, here's my address. It's kind of, it's it's a sea change in attitude about that that could happen. I think that's a long-term sort of thing. Well, let's go back to the original question. Are CEOs worth it? I think what we're saying is that there is this presumption that the contribution of the CEO is very, very high, and they somehow should get credit for all successes, no matter what happens. But if things go the other way, somehow they're not blamed for failures. How is that going to change <laughs> the way things are set up now? I don't think that it it will change. I, I think this is one of those sort of mysterious hall of mirrors kinds of things where the great rise in CEO pay, to me, seems related to sort of the advent of technology. And once once the personal computer became a reality and people were able to have these machines in their house and all of the attendant activities around that, the creation of various applications, this constant race to build a better, stronger, faster PC, and this reliance that we have. I mean, our entire society now is based on having a laptop in your kitchen so that you can shop and check the stock prices and see what the weather's going to be. Uh, a way of life. And supporting all that were these companies like Apple and and later Google and Amazon and Microsoft. And there was such incredible demand for the products and services that these companies provided that their earnings were just astounding through the roof. I think it was easy to rationalize that, well, Bill Gates must be a genius. You know, Jeff Bezos must be a genius. And as a result, the boards were just giving them these huge rewards because the stock price continually going up. Everybody's making money. Everybody's happy. Let's keep these guys going. They've got the right ideas. But I don't think it's based on the individual acumen of every CEO in every company. I think it was sort of this mania that overtook us as a society that said, the CEO of a company must be the most important person in the company because they've got the idea. And I guess to some degree, it's having the idea was important, but There are all those people that are doing the real work, the heavy lifting. People like you and I that have worked in the trenches for these companies that are wildly successful, who have worked long hours, have worked very hard and diligently and focused and did the best that we could do. We got minuscule rewards based on on comparatives. So I think it's wrong that you put all the money at the top. I think these people are important. They're important because they have a vision. They're important because they've got management ideas. But I don't think that they're 900 times more important than all the people that are building the products and selling the products and supporting the products. I think those people deserve a cut of it as well. No idea how we get there. 
Yeah, and the other negative consequence of so richly rewarding the very top is the absolute mad scramble and the things people will do to get to that level. Because you've got this exponential increase in compensation when you get even close to the top, that people start doing crazy things, taking big risks. And it incents people to do things potentially illegal, potentially bad for the company, all to get to that level, to get that life-changing, wealth creation, legacy kind of money. Well, I think you're right. I, I think there's actually more to it than as well. I, I believe that there are essentially two kinds of people that are striving to climb the ladder. And one kind is those people that are driven solely by the financial rewards. I, I do honestly believe that there are many people whose sole measure of their value in the world is how much money they that that's the thing that they gauge their success or failure on. That may in fact be the driver behind all of it, that success equals money. The more money I make, the more successful I am. Then I think that there are other people who believe that they can contribute, who are curious as to how far can they advance? How, how far can they go within an organization and contribute and make a difference? And that's probably a small minority of people, but I think they're out there. And I think that those folks will never be CEOs because they lack that killer instinct that comes from, I'm going to get all the money I can get, regardless of whose head I step on. But I do think that the, the money is a big driver. But I think once you get to those levels, if you're the CEO of a company that you and I know the name of, odds are you're pretty ruthless in a lot of ways. I don't think you can achieve those levels of management without smashing a few toes along the way. Absolutely. Well, let me bring up what might be an anomaly. Elon Musk, is he worth what he got paid? So let me just say, he doesn't make much in terms of salary, but he was granted a pay package back in 2019 that was stock-based. If you had to guess, what do you think that compensation package is worth today? I can't even comprehend. This guy's got more money than almost anyone else. I don't know if he's number one right now, but he's close to it. It's a worth today around $50 billion. Really? Yeah. Is he that must it? exceed the GDP of a lot of countries. <laughs> yeah. Two things about Elon. As you know, I've said probably some unkind things about him in the past. I'm both a, a fan and a foe of mm. Elon Musk. I remember a few years ago when his biography came out, I was fascinated when I read that because he had just started Tesla and he had SpaceX in the works and he had this history of uh, successful IT companies, some of which it turns out were a little bit wildly exaggerated in this book. He made a pile of money in a startup, an internet startup that was associated at some point with PayPal. That was not his company, but he was involved in it. And he walked away with a lot of stock and a lot of cash. And he used that to start up these two dramatically revolutionary companies, Tesla and SpaceX. In some ways, because this guy is such a visionary in terms of how he sees the future and in, in some of the things that he said earlier in his life that were profoundly positive, that he was trying to do this for the betterment of mankind, I had a lot of respect for him. That's changed to some degree because his behavior seems to have changed, or maybe it's my perception of his behavior that has changed. I don't know. There's no way he needs that much money. There's no way that any one person needs that much wealth. Somehow, I think that if you get to that point, you need to be channeling that, that money somewhere else. He's probably paying his employees very well, but I think he could pay them ridiculously well and achieve the same sorts of things and improve his 
uh, image in my view, at least. I don't think there's any human rationalization for how much money the guy had. Counter that, I think if he suddenly realized that he could share this in a very supportive way with the people that really need it the most, the people that are at the bottom of the run, that would be a good thing. I just I can't imagine it's going to happen. Elon is the tip of the spear of wealth inequality. And he's also a data point for the compensation consultants as they go out and figure yeah. out what they should pay their current CEO. But as you said early on, the the fallacy of that is the the consultants who are making this determination are really only feathering their own neck. Because if mm-hmm. I can give you a massive raise, my contract is up in two years, and and that's going to come back to benefit me. Vicious cycle. So the first group that is hurt by these enormous pay packages are probably the investors in the SEC. The Securities and Exchange Commission is tasked with protecting investors, but they have no ability to regulate the pay of executives. Should that change? When you ask me that, I, I, I come up blank for how you would go about regulating them. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind that there are kind of two popular forms of, I want to say government, but probably two sorts of societal approaches to life. One is socialism which of course in this country we like to advertise as the the bad communists. The other is capitalism. This nation, the United States, and to some degree, a a lot of the developed countries are capitalist societies. They have various forms of social programs to help the least advantaged. But it's all about, you can make as much money as you can make, as long as you don't violate laws or murder people. That's sort of the, the way capitalism works. And to try and rein that in somehow through putting a cap on this, I, I can't imagine it would ever happen. I can't imagine that you would get any sort of consensus in our Congress to allow such a thing to happen. But furthermore, I, I think that it's kind of counter to the whole economic idea of this country, that if you say you can't make this much money because it's not fair, then you're becoming a socialist nation. And so then I guess it's a question of what what really matters. I do have to say, though, even socialism, it's no different. If we look at our favorite communist countries like North Korea and China and Russia, same thing goes on there. There's a tiny percent of people at the top that have all the money. Everybody else is struggling. So they like to say, well, we're socialist. We care about everyone. It's simply not the case. This is a universal problem. This is a universal problem that has existed since the beginning of time. Look, I've got more dinosaurs than you do. It's just the way life is. So we have to deal with it. And I think that the only way that we can alter anything is you you don't look at the top, you look at the bottom. You look at the people that are the most in need and you try and understand how can we benefit them. And one of the things that's under discussion all the time that never seems to change in our country has to do with uh, corporate income tax. So if a corporation can afford to pay their CEOs $25 million a year, shouldn't they also contribute through income tax something to the social safety net of the country? Mm. And maybe that's the direction that you go. Instead of limiting the CEO pay, you find ways to extract a little of that wealth and give it to the people that, that need it the most. And don't ask me how that all happens, because that's a that's a topic for people that are in that business. But something inside of me says that wealth redistribution needs to happen, and you have to find a mechanism to do that. I just have no clue how you go about doing that. Well, I'm slightly more optimistic on this subject, I think, than you. And I think some of the things that went into law after the 2008 financial crisis, like the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, 
of 2010. You mean the, uh, the laws they're trying to get rid of right now? Well, they're still in place now. <laughs> and a lot of those things were thought impossible to get into place. But that crisis generated enough momentum to create these laws. And I, I think if the, the people can get the political leaders aligned around the idea that CEO pay is something that can be regulated for public companies. Private companies completely understand everything you said is absolutely correct. But if you're a public company, you have expectation of being transparent and fair to create these capital markets that are generating all of that wealth. I am more optimistic with the idea that there is some way of creating rules around CEO pay. And maybe it is that Hey, if you're going to give a hundred million dollar stock grant today, that could go up to, you know, 200 million or down to 50 million. Either way, it's an enormous amount of money that perhaps there is a special tax on CEO pay that ought to be put in place. And I think that's a really great idea that you just came up with off the top of your head. So well done, sir. Let me refer back to one of my favorite old time futurists. We've talked about this in the past. Alvin Toffler wrote a great deal about his vision of the future was that because government has continually shown its inability to regulate certain things, that the corporations in the future, the future is now, by the way, would become the social safety net, would become the conscience of our society, hmm. that corporations would start to do the things that government was unable to do. So I think what you're saying is you're, you're waiting for that to happen. You're waiting for a company like Apple to say, we're paying this guy so much money, we should start contributing even more. And to be fair, most big companies do give a lot of money to charity. They have all kinds of support for nonprofits and that sort of thing. So I don't want to take that away from them. They do do that. There needs to be a conscience within the corporation that says, this this is just not right. The thing that you and I are talking about is not, not justifiable. We as an organization need to share more of our money with the people of, of this nation and the people of the world. To me, it's a, in some ways, it's almost a pie in the sky kind of ideal. It's hard for me to imagine that happens. I hope you're right. I hope that your vision of the future is correct. There's an interesting topic there, perhaps for another episode around corporate charity, because I think you're more optimistic on what that has been in the past. I think if you dig into that, you find it's not really all that generous. Best example is Microsoft giving their software away to colleges which clearly costs them nothing or almost nothing, but has a incredible way of creating new customers in the future since they're being taught to use their software. Which and then is, you need a, a Windows-based machine to run it. Exactly. Going back to my days at GE, GE was a, a big proponent of giving to organizations. And in some ways, they did kind of the same thing. There were a lot of medical devices and uh, mechanical devices that were given to some of the poorer nations around the world. And there there have always been these conversations that I've had with people within that organization that say, this is ridiculous. These guys are making all these billions of dollars and they're making these paltry contributions to name a nonprofit. And my opinion was always, well, at least they're doing something. And whether they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart or whether they're doing it to increase their bottom line, does it really matter because you look at the benefit that that gives to the group of people that receive these things? I think there are kind of two sides to that, and that is the corporation may decide it's wise for us to make all these contributions because, look, it increases our customers. Mm -hmm. Okay, I get that. And I don't think that's bad because when you look at the outcome of the fact that they're giving money or equipment or whatever, 
people benefit from that would be an interesting topic to delve into. It'd be fun to kind of dig in and do some research and see who's giving what to whom and what are the benefits at the ground level mm-hmm. and what are the benefits at the corporate level. Do you, do you increase your profit by doing that? But at the same time, it's a good thing. You're not taking away from people. You're actually contributing something. Yeah. And one of the big questions, are they donating money or things? Lots of examples. It does. But if you're donating, if you're donating shoes to an African nation, you're destroying the cobbler's business in that little village where they're attempting to make a little bit of a living by making shoes. Or there are some examples that we should go over when we have that episode. (laughs) Very (laughs) bizarre examples. I'm intrigued. I would like to get into this. Donating rice to Haiti destroyed (laughs) an entire agricultural business. All right. Well, Denny, I think we've come to some conclusions, figured out some things. Yeah. Let me make Uh, one last point before we go. I know that you and I have talked about this some, and one of the questions that you raised at one point was, is a lot of this disparity due to the Silicon Valley effect? So I referred to this a bit ago about how these early companies that got into the IT game made so much money, and a lot of them were based there. But because of that comment that you made to me last week, I, I actually dug into this a little bit, and it turns out that it's just not the case that all the money is in the Bay Area. There are these pockets around the United States of obscene wealth, and they're in the places you would expect. So San Jose, San Francisco. But did you know that the third wealthiest community in the United States is Washington, D.C.? So what does that hmm. tell you? I don't know of any IT companies that are there, but there's a huge pocket of wealth. And then there's Boston, there's Seattle uh, near you. But there are, are places literally around the country, mostly the bigger cities, where this concentration of wealth resides. I'm not sure we can attribute it to a single industry. It's more that the introduction of technology has impacted every kind of business, everything from mining to oil drilling to manufacturing to computer production. It's a very widespread basis. It's just in a very thin layer. So that was the last thing I wanted to bring up. I think we've covered this issue fairly well. And I think many of the concepts will come up in future episodes. This was a good early episode to do. I agree. It's always interesting when you dig into these a little deeper. This was an enlightening experience. Elon is not the only villain out there. Well, thank you, Denny. I appreciate your comments as always. Good chatting. Next episode, Bud Light. Okay, that works for me. I'll look forward to that one. Maybe that's a little too soon. 